0: There has been a lot of excitement around GLP-1s as a groundbreaking new class of drugs for the treatment of diabetes and obesity. From the perspective of the pharma companies, we see the market for the GLP-1 category exceeding $100 billion over time globally. Today, we are here to discuss what these drugs are, how they could lead to a big paradigm shift in healthcare in tackling the obesity epidemic, and some of the big controversies.
1: Outside of work, usually no one wants to ask me questions about like what new, exciting drugs are coming to the market. That's not the case with GLP-1s. Everyone wants to talk about these. And I think that's something unique I'm seeing in the space. I've covered the drug industry for 20 years. I've never seen this kind of broader societal level discussion around a new class of medications like this.
0: Hello and welcome to Research Recap on J.P. Morgan's Making Sense podcast channel. My name is Alif Korkmaz and I cover healthcare specialist sales at J.P. Morgan in New York. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues Chris Schatz, Senior U.S. Pharma analyst and Richard Wasser, Senior European Pharma Analyst. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. So Richard, let's start with you. So there has been ton of excitement around GLP-1s and it has been one of the core investment themes in healthcare this year. Can you help us put this all in perspective? Maybe let's go back to basics and help us understand what all this excitement is about.
2: Hey Elise. hey everyone. So GLP-1s have been around for quite a while. They started off as diabetes drugs, and they've been pretty good at treating diabetes, but as a side effect of the treatment of diabetes, they are pretty good at making people lose weight. And how do they do that? They basically modify your appetite in two ways. So they act on your stomach. So the idea of feeling full. So, you know, if you've ever eaten a lot of steak, then you'll know that you feel pretty full after a large meal. And that's the feeling of fullness that they accentuate. So that makes you eat less. And they also act on your brain. So the feeling of satiety, the feeling of that you've eaten and that you should stop, they make that greater as well. And that side effect, if you like, of their mechanism of action has now been put to use as an indication in itself for the treatment of obesity. So that's what it's all about. There's been this new class of drugs that can actually, for the first time ever, Deliver meaningful weight loss.
1: And maybe, Rich, just building on that, this whole idea of obesity, I mean, it's obviously such an epidemic. I mean, think about the US, you've got 40% of the population is obese. So, this is, in our view, one of the kind of bigger unmet needs in the market. And I think what's unique about this class of drugs is you typically don't see patients wanting to take medication. So, if I think about kind of other big classes of drugs, cholesterol, blood pressure, it's usually a doctor saying something's wrong with you, take this pill. You won't look any different. You won't feel any different. And it's a little bit of a challenge to get some of the patients engaged. That's not the case here. I'm a drug analyst. Outside of work, usually no one wants to ask me questions about like what new exciting drugs are coming to the market. That's not the case with GLP-1s. Everyone wants to talk about these. And I think that's something unique I'm seeing in the space. I've covered the drug industry for 20 years. I've never seen this kind of broader societal level discussion around a new class of medications like this. And I think that has the potential to capture both sides of this where you have a huge, market opportunity. And also we have patients on their side who actually are really excited about getting on these medications.
0: That's really helpful, Chris. And just for the audience, if you can help us better understand the landscape, what options that are available out there and some of the key players?
1: Yeah, sure. So Richard and I talk a lot about this. It's really two players right now. So it's Novo Nordisk and it's Eli Lilly. And I think what's been different about what's happening currently is we've been talking about this class of drugs for 15 years. And as Richard mentioned, they're great diabetes medications, but that wasn't the most exciting thing for the broader world. The newer medications, though, so we think about drugs like Ozempic in diabetes, Wagovi in obesity, Monjaro, which is an Eli Lilly drug coming to market. These are drugs that have profoundly better efficacy than we've seen previously. So if you took an older class of GLP-1s, you might lose a few pounds. Sure, that's great. We're now starting to see patients losing 20, 30, 50 pounds of weight over the first year they're on a medication. That's a very different dynamic, and I think that's capturing the public's attention to a much greater extent than we've seen previously.
0: Absolutely. I mean, these drugs really rose to prominence in the mainstream media with celebrities being on it. But I think from the investment perspective, we saw a pretty historic moment this summer with the GLP one trade, right? There was a massive bifurcation of performance in healthcare stocks, especially around August, when we had the select study from Noah Nordis looking at the cardiovascular outcomes. And we saw a big divergence of performance, you know, stocks like Eli Lilly. No NOAA, Nordisk, and companies involved in the whole GLP-1 supply chain and manufacturing outperforming significantly, while companies on the medical device side of things, they really underperformed over these GLP-1 fears. And to me, what was really interesting is when we looked at select results, it showed that Vigovi not only helped people to lose weight, but also reduced their risk of suffering from heart attacks, strokes, cardiovascular deaths by 20%. This is a huge, profound impact that could have further implications for the healthcare space broadly, right? And the treatment paradigm. Do you guys want to take a minute to discuss about SELECT and how do we view the landscape there? Yeah, maybe I'll take that one first. I think
2: that's the whole point, isn't it? So Chris has talked about patients want to take the drugs, right? They want to lose weight. So there's quite a lot of pull from patients. But what the SELECT study does is it tells you why you should be losing weight. And then that has implications downstream, which I'm sure Chris will talk about. But the why you want to lose weight is because the weight is causing a lot of downstream issues with health. You know, there is a direct cause now from the obesity of cardiovascular risk, so the risk of having a heart attack. And at least, as you said, the 20% reduction on that was shown in Select. But it's not just the risk of a heart attack. It is the risk of progression to diabetes, which is not only hugely costly for the healthcare systems, but it also leads to worse health outcomes cardiovascularly, but also for your kidneys. All sorts of things go wrong. And we're really just at the tip of the iceberg there. And that's what Select brings. It brings this idea that instead of waiting to treat the downstream effects, the comorbidities of excess weight, you should just go in and treat the weight itself.
1: Yeah. And and just building on that, it seems like a paradigm shift. Rather than kind of treating all these different conditions as separate, somewhat unrelated conditions, there's a common denominator, which is these conditions tend to affect patients who are obese to a much, much greater extent than the broader population. So I think what's interesting as we think about this data, Wagovi is a great drug. There's even better drugs coming. You know, if we have a 20% benefit for these patients, only losing 10 or 15% of their body weight. I think Richard and I are both pretty excited when we think about Zepbound bound for Lilly where that weight loss is 20%. Novo has drugs coming, that's 25%. Lily's in the same range. So we think that these data sets will only get more impressive over time. And then you think about just what this means from a payer perspective. We'll talk about that a little bit Is can we afford medications like this? But if you can take a drug that reduces your risk of a heart attack, reduces your risk of death, reduces your risk of sleep apnea, stroke, effectively prevents diabetes in these patients, it's hitting on so many elements of costs in the healthcare system that it kind of comes back to this issue of why we're thinking of this as the largest drug category we've ever seen. We just never have seen a medication that will touch on all those different issues with one drug.
0: Absolutely, Chris. I mean, like you highlighted, all these outcome studies really put obesity in perspective as a chronic epidemic condition as opposed to a lifestyle change. And that's going to be key for coverage perspective. And you kind of touched on this, but this is one of the biggest controversies for the class of drugs. You've done significant work on the obesity markets and you previously said that you estimate obesity opportunity in the U.S. approaching 50 billion by 2030. That's a very big number. Can you help us better understand your assumptions there, getting to that number? Also, from an access and insurance perspective, where are we now? And will insurers broadly cover GLP-1s for obesity? Yeah,
1: and this is something we talk a lot about with investors is basically everyone wants these drugs, but will everyone be able to get these drugs? And I'm sure anyone who's tried to get these medications, there's a lot of hoops to jump through right now. Our thought is this is a matter of when, not if. We think most major employers, the idea of their employees' health is increasingly kind of front and center with all these wellness programs. This again comes back to, it touches on so many elements of health that we could see a situation where employers wanna see more data, they wanna see this play out. But I think as we dig into that data, it's just hard to dispute the findings that we're seeing here. So we'll talk about this a little bit when it comes to capacity. There may be some dynamics here where the companies are keeping the price a bit higher because they can't meet demand. Maybe we'll see some employers initially target patients who are of more severe risk than other patients for the initial use of these medications. But as you start to ramp capacity, as price comes down, I mean, we're thinking looking out five or seven years, it's pretty much just going to be standard that major employers cover these medications. Richard, I know with NOAA, they've kind of led the charge on building this initial access and educating employers about obesity. What are you seeing in terms of where coverage is today and how that could improve over time?
2: Yeah, their coverage builds every time you speak to them, so their coverage is now somewhere in the region of 50 million. So they've got the bulk of patients in the US. So they've got the bulk of the available market outside of Medicare, which is you know, the over 65s. They've got the bulk of the commercial, which is pre-65. Now, as you alluded to, there's a few hoops to jump through, and those hoops will come down. but the broad coverage is there, the broad employer opt-ins are also there coming through over time. Now, when we think about price, I think what we should probably talk about is the idea that diabetes prices have been coming down by 10% a year. And I think that's what we're gonna see here. You know, a couple of 10% a year, forever, downwards. That's what we're gonna see as the supply builds, as the access comes through.
1: And I think what we're talking about, we get these questions often as we see it at the press a lot, that the list price of these drugs is very high. That's really not what employers are paying, and that number is only going to come down over time. So we're talking about pricing. We're assuming these things will only cost a few thousand dollars a year when you look out to when access is broadly available. And again, relative to the benefit you're getting, I don't think it's a hard decision for a lot of payers to look at that. So I kind of like to address that controversy, as we do hear that a lot from folks, that there's a lot of press around, can the system afford these? Are they too expensive? And I think a lot of times it's looking at that list price versus what an actual kind of net price will end up being when these companies end up negotiating discounts.
0: Absolutely. And you know, speaking of access, one of the other key issues that we're currently facing is supply challenges. Right, a lot of people are eligible for these drugs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can access it. Demand really has really outstripped supply recently. Richard, maybe we turn to you. and Can you please talk about where we are currently with the availability of Vigovi in the US? And maybe if you can talk us through what NOAA is doing to overcome these supply challenges? Yeah, completely. I mean, the restrictions are there and they're restricting the
2: starter doses so that they are available for patients as they start, they can progress on to higher doses to generate higher weight loss so that patients can go through to be able to achieve their maximal dose. So in order to make sure that patient experience is there, they're restricting the number of patients that they will allow on the drug to start with. Now that comes back to the problem. The problem is that demand has far outstripped the projections that Novo or anybody else had for the drugs in the first place. Novo had been building this market with obesity, and Chris touched on it earlier, for about five or six years, and they hadn't got very far because the drug that they were using only made people lose 5% of their body weight. And then the current round of drugs, this tipping point of over 10% led to overwhelming demand. And so it takes time once you have much greater demand to ramp up the supply chain, just the physical building of sites to do this, getting the pens that these are delivered in, et cetera. That takes a lot of time. And so Novo working through this, what we'd expect is supply to continuously ramp up over the next few years. And we're going to be talking about supply effectively, I think, from Novo ultimately doubling, doubling, and doubling again. And I think that's pretty similar when it comes to Lilly as well. Yeah,
1: usually they can make as much as you want of the drug, but no one wants to take it. This is a different situation. So from that perspective, the lead time here is about three years from when you decide you need capacity to when you can get it. And to Richard's point, I mean, Lilly just added a facility that doubles their capacity. They had another facility of similar size basically every year for the next four years. That may not even meet the demand that's out there. And I think as we then talk about where this eventually goes, I know both companies here are also working on oral medications, probably ultimately going to be required to really fully satisfy the market is you need to turn these things into pills. You can't make enough auto injector pens to keep up with demand ultimately. And 2026 and beyond, I think that's a reality that those will become a much more prevalent kind of delivery mechanism versus having to inject yourself.
0: Chris, for orals, how close do you think we are to having a viable oral on the market? And can you also talk about some of the other players that are trying to enter the space?
1: Sure. And I know Richard and I debate this a lot of the various companies working on it, but from a Lilly perspective, they're in phase three. so the last phase of development. We'll see data in 2025. We'll launch the drugs in 2026. I know Novo has some Oral agents, they're working, and we're probably in similar timeframes. They're taking it different ways. But i kind of thinking about three years from now, these are probably more mainstream drugs than what we see currently. And then we think about the broader market. It is one that we think of this as kind of a duopoly, that there's companies like Amgen and Pfizer that are working. But Novo and Lilly have spent decades working on this class of medication. They spend more money than anybody else out there they have such a head start. It's just hard for us to envision someone really catching up. So we think of this as these two companies really leading innovation for the foreseeable future. Richard, I don't know if anything you'd add.
2: Yeah, I'd just build on that. And from that innovation that you're saying, it's the idea that Novo and Lily's next generation products are going to be delivering 25, 30% weight loss in that sort of category. Whereas the people who are trying to catch up are going to be delivering sort of 15% weight loss as far as we can see. So they're not going to have enough efficacy or enough weight loss, I should say, to really compete with Nova and Lilly. They keep their competitive advantage, if you like. And then on the orals, the orals are going to have to be safe, right? To your point on working on this for a very long time, these drugs took some refinement to be able to make them tolerable. And not all drugs reached the market back in the day. And I think the orals are going to go through this. And I think, again, Novo and Lily have a head start. Lily's in phase three. Novo have the data already for their oral. They just need to be able to make enough, a recurring theme.
1: Yes, exactly. It's an interesting point you bring up, Richard, about the whole issue of safety and tolerability, because I get that question a lot. The main issue with these drugs is really one more about tolerability than safety. So, as Richard mentioned before, this changes the way your body processes how you feel when you eat. So, there's some patients who go on these medications and think these are some wonder drug where you you take a shot once a week, you eat what you want, suddenly you miraculously lose weight, and they don't quite work that way. So, I do think there's going to be an education process that helps patients better manage these things, that you do have to eat a little bit less, you maybe have to eat slightly different food. And to be fair, that's not going to be for everybody. Not everyone's going to want to change their diet, but We do think there's enough motivation in the broader market that for many patients who go on these drugs, you're gonna get that tolerability issue where you don't feel great for the first month or two. But once you get through that, these are some of the drugs with the highest compliance rates we see in the market, because people, the side effects go away and they generally feel better, they look better, and they're happy to be on the medication. So I think that's again one of these other issues we think about. It'll take time, but ultimately we kind of think of these almost becoming chronic medications as compared to something you maybe take for some short window of time and then go off therapy.
2: Just to broaden that, Chris, in terms of on the safety, we've got lots and lots of years of safety data. We've talked about this for 10 years or so, 15 years, these products have been on the market and they've accumulated a lot of use in patients. And there really are no safety issues other than the tolerability issues that you've just spoken about, Chris. So that's, I think, very reassuring the data there from a safety perspective.
0: I mean, speaking of length of use and duration on treatment, right, if these are going to be chronic lifelong medications, where are we currently on the average duration on the drug? Also, you know, what happens to patients once they stop taking the drug? Do they put the weight back on? And if you're thinking about maintenance therapy, do you also see a role for some of the oral options that might lead to less weight loss? But that could be more tolerable and could be used more chronically? Sure,
1: I'll start there and turn over to Richard. But from our perspective, I think every physician is going to tell the patient this is a chronically used medication. And we probably all don't listen to what our doctors say, so realistically, not everyone's going to do that. What we do see with the data, however, is if you stop taking these medications, the patients tend to regain a majority of their weight fairly quickly quickly. So almost as fast as it goes off, it comes back on. So there is an incentive for the patient that is not like you lose 30 pounds, you stop taking the drug, you hold that weight, you'll start regaining weight. So as we think about the market, as we see more outcomes data suggesting you get all of these health benefits, I think it'll be an easier message to the patient. Yeah, you're losing weight, but also these drugs are keeping you alive longer. So you probably don't want to stop taking them. That's not where we are today. So we're kind of thinking of this as some people take it chronically, some people take it intermittently. It's not one size fits all. And to your point in the longer term, I don't think we know how that's going to play out. There very well may be a maintenance dose that's an oral, maybe it's less frequently dosed that just helps you sustain weight when you no longer need to lose weight. I think we're probably just in the early part of the curve here. We're just trying to figure out how big is the demand and kind of get that initial weight loss in before we're worrying so much about how do you sustain it from there.
2: I'd just add that When you look from the doctor side as well, they're going to be encouraging the patients to stay. So, you know, when they prescribe you a blood pressure lowering agent, they don't just say, here's your blood pressure agent, here's your blood pressure, it's come down, and then say, stop taking it because we've got it down. They say, take it forever because they know that low blood pressure forever gives you a benefit on your health. And it's the same here coming back to the lecture, has shown is you should take these drugs for a long period of time to get health benefits. So there's going to be motivation from both sides. It's going to be physician motivation because they know of the health benefits and there's going to be patient motivation that Chris has spoken about that they feel better. The mirror is going to be the measure there. And as Chris says, it's not going to be for everybody. About 20% of patients don't tolerate these drugs, but the vast majority We've seen in the data from the SLEC trial, 75% of patients stayed on the drug for about three to four years. So Chris is right, there's going to be mixed use, but people will generally stay.
0: Definitely. Richard, taking a step back, how are you thinking about the market size and the split between diabetes and obesity? And how do you get to your numbers?
2: Yeah, so Chris and I debate this all the time. So numbers generally tend upwards. But from a diabetes and a BC point of view, we see them as equally sized markets. you've got around thirty two million diabetics u s same in Europe or so. you're further advanced in terms of the use of Glp ones in diabetes about fifteen percent usage rate today. Everybody who's a diabetic should be on these drugs. you know weight loss improves diabetes, blood glucose control these are the best so We're going to head towards that, and that's going to drive substantial use. And then obesity, it's going to take a good length of time to penetrate this market. There's hundreds of millions of obese people in the US and Europe each. But of course, it's probably going to be a lower use rate to start with. So we see the similar size at the moment. But what do you think, Chris? Do you think obesity ends up being bigger?
1: I'm probably in the camp that it probably does end up being bigger. And I think that's an area where we think that probably is more upside than just reinforce what you're saying. I know this conversation has been about obesity. There's a lot of type two diabetics and these medicines are profoundly better medications than anything we've ever seen. So I think as drug analysts, we're probably really excited about that setting in particular because this has been such a hard to treat disease where there's lots of medications you take, and all they do is try to keep your disease from progressing. They don't actually make you better. And we're seeing these drugs for the first time, some of the Lilly data, like half the patients who go on these medications get their blood sugar back down to normal, so they're no longer diabetic. We've never, ever seen that in data sets before. And then the obesity side, I think you just get to this point where it's becoming this kind of cultural phenomena, and if there is a medication you can take and lose a lot of weight, and there may be ways of doing that that are pills, maybe they're weekly injections, maybe they're monthly injections. You can kind of choose what you want. I'm assuming over time you are going to see a lot of patients wanting to get access to that. So ultimately, when you think about that market opportunity, we have 40% of the patient population is obese. So it's really hard to fight those numbers, even at a very low price. It ends up with a huge revenue opportunity in that it affects most of the population.
0: Well, Chris, Richard, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I think there's a lot of excitement, rightfully so, around the topic. It seems like over the next few years, there are a lot of new developments coming in the space and the category is going to be profoundly impactful for healthcare with far-reaching consequences just beyond pharmaceuticals. I want to thank you again for joining me today. For more information, you can go to jpmorgan.com forward slash research. And thank you again.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Research Recap. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll
1: review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved.